Welcome to Life, the Universe, and Everything, an unconventional science podcast. I'm Michelle Caldwell. I'm Chris Orvin. And we're your hosts. Today we have Martin Weston with us. He's a retired journalist and lives in the uh, university area neighborhood near the Ohio State University. And we're very happy to have him today, especially because it's his 70th birthday. Kind of a big one. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Chris. We're glad to have you here. So we thought we'd start by asking um, kind of how you started in journalism and how, was it something you were always interested in as a child? Uh, Was it something you stumbled into? Um, Just how that developed for you. Actually, it was part of a Boy Scout trip that uh, I was assigned to be the scribe uh, in an effort to earn a merit badge. And uh, the trip was a 10-day trip to Washington, D.C., Toronto, Canada, Montreal, Canada, Niagara Falls, then back down to uh, New York City and then home. And uh, after that trip was over, uh, I had to give a report before the sponsoring group, which was a church in our community, the White Rock Baptist Church, and uh, my entire family got to, uh, was invited to watch me make that report before the entire congregation, and uh, it was quite an experience to see my my dad, my mom, and at the time my two sisters and uh, two brothers uh, seated in front of me, and uh, the reaction on their faces when I'm given this report was just so amazing. It was a feeling that caused, it was the the thing that really encouraged me to pursue journalism as a lifelong uh, career. And that, in fact, is what happened. Yeah, so the next big event was probably uh, when I uh, landed a job as an intern at the Winston-Salem Journal and Sentinel, which was uh, the community where my mother lived, I mean, sorry, my grandmother lived. We lived in Durham, which was about 90 miles away from Winston-Salem. But my grandmother was able to secure uh, a position for me, uh, and this this was in 1964, and uh, there weren't uh, a lot of uh, black journalists working for daily newspapers anywhere in the entire country at that time. Uh, The Journal had two, actually. I don't remember both gentlemen's names, so I won't mention the other one. Uh, But one of those gentlemen actually became a mentor for me and helped me write my very first uh, article, which was an article about a black businessman, which, again, was kind of a rarity, who had a casket-making firm. So uh, that was the first published uh, article that I ever had as a journalist. It was about a man who was making caskets. Wow. How old were you? Uh, 17. Oh, wow. So were you still in high school? I actually was. This was this was uh, summer vacation before uh, my senior year of high school, which also was uh, a momentous time for me because that was the year my family moved from Durham to Orangeburg, South Carolina. So I'm both a North Carolinian and a South Carolinian. And uh, South Carolina was in a bit of turmoil in those days. In fact, in sub- subsequent years, it was... Uh, Orangeburg was the scene of what it's uh, known now as the Orangeburg Massacre, which happened at about the same time as the Kent State Massacre, and so it it didn't get the the level of of, uh, publicity that Kent State did, but this was a protest by black students who were attempting to integrate uh, a bowling alley in uh, in, uh, Orangeburg. uh, Which uh, university? This would have been South Carolina State College. Okay which may be a university now. There are actually two schools, South Carolina State and Claflin College, which are uh, sister institutions on the same uh, ground, right next to each other in Orangeburg. Orangeburg is a, a relatively small community. I think when I lived there, there were about 13,000 in the village, uh, 26,000 in, the, in mm-hmm. the community. I mean, sorry, in the, in the county is what I recall. Right. This was this was a, a, a protest uh, over the lack of uh, the public accommodations law, uh, civil rights law had been passed, I, I believe in 1964, in the early 60s, and some of the southern states, many of the southern states were very slow to implement those changes, 
And uh, so this was a protest to implement changes that were in the federal uh, uh, civil rights laws. And uh, there was pushback, and uh, the National Guard was called, and um, several students were killed. It's three or four, I'm not sure. And your family had some connection to that? My dad, uh, apparently, and, and, you know, I was not there as a witness, but apparently was an advisor to the students who were leading the protest. And uh, that was known by authorities who were apparently watching closely who was involved. And uh, he was invited to leave town. And he took that uh, seriously and, in fact, moved his family to Ohio where he uh, became a professor at uh, Central State uh, College in Xenia, which is next to Wilberforce College. Right. So uh, he, uh, his, his entire career was in uh, uh, college academics. Mm-hmm. And my mom also, too, she taught English. Uh, she was an associate professor last at uh, uh, Stony Brook College in New York. So then when you left high school, then what was the next part of your journey after that? I finished high school at a very propitious time, I think, for um, black journalism. Uh, Because of the civil rights movement, there was a a need for black journalists to be on the ground and uh, to cover some of the protests. And in fact, uh, while I was in college, in 1968, following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April, on April 4th of that year, I was called by Newsweek magazine, for whom I had been a stringer, which is uh, uh, kind of a remote correspondent uh, freelancer uh, for Newsweek magazine as part of my college internship, I guess. And where did you go to college? I went to Temple University in Philadelphia. And so they called me on uh, that Thursday, uh, I think it was a Thursday, and said, could I come to Washington to assist with the coverage of what was uh, a riot that was going on uh, in the uh, aftermath of Dr. King's assassination? I never will forget flying into Washington, D.C. at about 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the evening, and the fires uh, were burning in, on, in two locations in Washington, uh, and the smoke was rising in the sky, and it was almost like a, a scene from the paintings that we've seen of the Star Spangled Banner, where this, this, the sky is, is, is red both from the sun setting and from the smoke and flames that are, are sending into the sky as the plane landed in, into, uh, at the time, National Airport. So uh, that that really was uh, the kickoff of my career where I was immediately put on the street and told by my bureau chief, who was uh, like the city editor, uh, to call him every every 15 minutes. And uh, I, I won't, won't forget that uh, and he gave me uh, quite uh, a lecture when I came back to the bureau because I didn't call him every 15 minutes. I called them like every 20 minutes. <laughs> but they were worried about me. You know, and of course, I'm a young kid and invincible. I had no idea that there was any danger at all. I was there to cover a score story, and I was very excited about this. But, of course, more mature minds knew that, in fact, you know, I could have been hurt. Do you think you stood out as a reporter? Or? No. I, in fact, I, I disguised myself. Uh, and I remember, in fact, somebody handed me uh, their uh, hoodie. This is before hoodies had a bad name, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and I covered myself so I looked, you know, to fit in with uh-huh. uh, the neighborhood. So I did not stand out, uh, and I, and I think I took my tie off. I always wore a tie. I think I took my tie off and put, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, in those days, you know, you have to remember there were no cell phones. You had to find a phone, a working phone right. number. And uh, in many neighborhoods, including this one, inner city Washington, D.C., that wasn't always uh, that available. So. Right. so did they publish your stories? Were your 
piece is part of a larger article? Yeah, or what, what would happen is that in, in the uh, news magazine uh, uh, operations, there are reporters and there are writers. They're separate. They're not the same. It's like on newspapers, for example, uh, where a reporter will write his own stories most of the time. Uh, in, in the case of news magazine operations, and that, that was for Newsweek and Time, I don't know which other magazines were around at that time. I don't know which ones were weekly. Uh, U.S. News and World's Report, World Report may have existed. I'm not sure. But in all of those operations, the reporters wrote files or wrote reports, and that was given to a writer or a group of writers who actually wrote the final copy mm-hmm. that appeared in the magazine. This was this was common for, for weekly mm-hmm. uh, operations and as opposed to daily operations. So yeah, so my 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 uh, notes were typed up and given to an editor or given to my bureau chief for review and, mm-hmm. and inclusion in the stories. So to say how much of that was in the actual final pieces, some of it was yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, did you ever butt heads with your supervisors about getting? Into, maybe not with Newsweek, but with other stories about I mean, you being. Oh, it's, it's easy to get into trouble with a uh-huh. with an editor. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Probably the the, big, the best story I have to say about that over the years was that uh, for a period of about a year and a half, I was a, an editor at Ebony Magazine. And uh, it, for those who don't know, Ebony Magazine was a magazine that was created. The 1950s, I want to say, uh, maybe the 60s, by uh, uh, John Johnson, who was uh, the publisher, and his wife, uh, Eunice Johnson. And the idea was to create a middle class image uh, for black families. And they did a pretty good job of that. When I came along in 1975, that was still the corporate ethic. But uh, I was interested in a young singer by the name of Bob Marley, who uh, was emerging on the scene in America, but uh, wore his hair in a uh, non-conventional fashion. He had dreadlocks. And uh, it was not considered very middle class to have any respect for people who wore dreadlocks or and smoked marijuana. But uh, I was not deterred by that, and uh, on my own accepted an invitation to travel to Jamaica to uh, spend a couple of days with uh, Bob Marley. And the Whalers? And the Whalers at their studio. (laughs) And uh, actually uh, attended a recording session. Oh, wow. And when I got back, nobody said anything to me, but after... Uh, we finished that edition of the magazine. I was called into uh, the managing editor's office and told that uh, that my services were no longer needed. Wow. So they fired me for uh, going off script, I guess. Would be well, at least, at least you got a... <laughs> there's a lot worse reasons to be fired than, than having... I actually made a good acquaintance with uh, with Barb Marley, and years later he... he uh, he, he attended one of my classes where I was an adjunct professor at Temple University. He called me back in the 1980s to, uh, when I'd gone, gone back to Philadelphia to teach for five semesters at, uh, at Temple University. And Bob Marley uh, was visiting in town, uh, and I found out about it, and I made the right calls. And, and he came to my class and talked to my students. Great. This wow. was... Uh, I want to say 1981, something around that. I'm not sure when he died, but just it was like a year or two before he, he passed. So what so, was your interview with Bob Marley like? I mean, what, what just kind of about music. It was about, you know, uh, the Rastafarian lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, at, at that time, he, he was not well known. I mean, we know a lot about him now, you know, and uh, but nobody knew a lot about him. And so it, it was a, a groundbreaking mm-hmm. interview that I had with him. I'm trying to remember who else was there. I know Bunny Whaler was there. I'm not sure Peter Tosh was, mm-hmm. but he may have been. I'm not really sure. I just don't recall. That was 30 years ago. So, so were you? Were you just out of curiosity? I mean, were, were you trying kind of not to talk about 
political current event type things. You just wanted to focus on the music because Ebony Magazine was focused on sort of this middle class. You know thing. what? I, I really uh, I didn't go with any thoughts about what Ebony Magazine wanted. It was more like this was mm -hmm. this was an important figure, and I recognized that, and I wanted to uh, introduce him to the community which which Ebony Magazine had an audience, but, you know, I mean, I, I, my role as a journalist, I mean, you had to be mindful of what your publisher, you know, would allow or didn't like or whatever. Sure. You had to be mindful of those things, but to be a true journalist, you couldn't let that wow. dictate to you what you were doing, which explains why I had so many different jobs. Right. I mean, that was the first time I'd ever been fired, but uh, I wasn't worried about that because in those uh -huh. days, literally a journalist could walk into any newsroom in any city in America and say to the person in charge, usually the city editor, you know, um, if you have an opening, I'd like to have a job. And, uh, and they would, they say, okay, well, what have you done? And you give a verbal mm -hmm. resume. And then uh, he'd say, well, okay, so uh, there's a school board meeting out in East DeBlanc. You need to get out there, and uh, you know we need a story by eleven o'clock. And if you could accomplish that, you were guaranteed that you would be working on salary the next day. That was true all the way up until the to uh, the advent of the internet, mm -hmm. when the internet changed the way uh, journalism operates. So uh, as newsroom became smaller and smaller, that opportunity disappeared pretty much so it was so it but, it, but the, the period that we're talking about being fired was not you know it was just a matter of you walk across the street and say you know they fired me across the street and you tell them why as long as it wasn't something like you didn't punch somebody out mm -hmm. then you know he'd sit you down and you start to work on for the, for the competing paper i'm sure there were many people at the the, the sun times who uh who uh in chicago who uh had worked at the Tribune, uh, you know, and gotten fired or, you know, told to go down to the Sun-Times and you, know, you can't work here anymore. Right. Sent to another paper because they had a fight with their boss. Mm -hmm. You know, a fight with a boss in journalism was not a death knell to any journalist's career. Hmm. That was par for the course. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So what were some of the other jobs that these kind of opportunities afforded <laughs> you? Yeah, so I worked twice in News, Newsweek. Um, when, when I went to work in Newsweek as a, as a young reporter when I was, like, in my early 20s, I really wasn't prepared to do that level of journalism. And uh, there was a recognition both from me and my editors that I needed to, to do what was considered sort of basic reporting at the newspaper level. So I took a job at the Miami Herald. Uh, after being at Newsweek for about three years, and uh, and uh, and uh, gained additional uh, like cop reporting experience, mm -hmm. you know, going to, to I went I remember going to a major fire. I remember riding around with cops, uh, making marijuana busts, uh, you know, in the early seventies. You know, that seemed like fun at the time. You never <laughs> did you ever feel scared, or were there any stories that you reported on that you? Where I thought I was revealing something that I should not have. Is that well, what just maybe you felt covering the story that you were unsafe or that things were dangerous. Yeah, um, I, you know, I. That's a hard one for me to say because I, I think there's an inherent sense of danger almost not every time you go out, but frequently when you when you go out on stories. If you go and cover a fire, you know, there's there's a. I don't know that danger, but there's a intensity to that that, you know, gets your adrenaline going, so, you know, uh, because you got to run around and talk to, you know, the fire chief, you're trying to find families, you know, you're listening to, to horror stories, I never had a fire that I covered in a community on Long Island called Wine Danch, where like seven children were killed, and, you know, just how do you approach that, how do you talk to family members who survived that, or family members who didn't live in that house, 
who are dealing with this tragic loss of, of, of seven children, you know, and then how could this happen? And then you want you need this uh, a myriad of, of follow-up stories, you know, that uh, that concern, uh, in this case, uh, kerosene uh, heater safety, mm-hmm. you know, which is you know, some people. You may not uh, know that people used to heat their homes with kerosene heaters. You know, this, like, this is a uh, standalone appliance that sat in the middle of the, the living room in the house and was designed to heat the whole house. And it would explode occasionally, you know. And, and uh, uh, in this particular case, the, 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 uh, uh, the youngster who was charged with filling up the kerosene heater made a mistake and filled it up with gasoline instead. So that's what happened in that particular instance. But it was not uncommon for that to happen, you know. So, I don't know. There's always uh, things within, when you're writing the story, that that there's an anxiety in what you're doing. You're you're sad sometimes. Uh, Sometimes you're anxious. Sometimes you're you're combative if you're facing, for example, uh, a politician who you know is not telling you the truth. You know, so uh, you have to balance your personal feelings with uh, the facts that you have at, at hand. You know, that's the challenge for, for a journalist is, you know, how to, how to keep your own uh, opinions out of the, the story, you know, and report facts. Can you think of a person that you interviewed that you look back on and was like, oh, I wish I would have asked them this, or I wish I would have handled it differently. Um. Yeah, I had a chance to to interview Michael Dukakis when he was a candidate for uh, the presidency. And uh, the the problem I had with that interview is that, one, it was too quick. It was in the back of of a car. I think we were riding to the airport and he was leaving wherever he was at that time and uh, I just don't feel as though that that interview uh, was was complete uh, you know uh, you think it was kind of a squandered opportunity yes in a way. Yeah. yeah and I have had similar interviews like that I had an interview uh, with uh, Richard Pryor uh, who was a famous comedian some may, may remember you know but he was high the whole time so, <laughs> let's go. Takes the pressure out, I suppose. Getting him out of here. Who was the easiest person for you to interview? Do you have a story about? Mario Cuomo, the, the former governor of the, the state of New York, uh, developed a personal affection, not on a uh, anything, just a, it was on a professional level. You know, he just liked me, and uh, he used to tease me a lot. And he used to, in the when we were having a a, a gaggle of uh, journalists standing around talking, he just very casually reach over, grab my hat, and put it on his head. You know, those kinds of mm-hmm. things. So I, I liked him a lot. I had a personal affection for him, and uh, he was always honest with me. He he would. He, this is. Uh, Half of the time I was a reporter, and then I got promoted to an editorial writer while he was governor. And uh, so when I became an editorial writer, it was not unusual for me to come to my office and have a message handed to me that I needed to immediately call the governor because he didn't like something I had written. So uh, when you're an editorial writer, you have a national audience of, of exactly about 100 people you know, because not a lot of people read editorials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so it, I felt honored any time, you know, uh, the governor left a message for me to call him, <laughs> which mm-hmm. he did three or four times during, during my tenure as an editorial writer. So, uh, yeah. Did you like one of those roles better than the other as far as being an actual reporter or being an editor or... Did you like all of them in different ways? Yeah, well, I think the answer to that question is while I was a reporter, I loved being a reporter. While I was an editorial writer, I loved being an editorial writer. So uh, uh, I I think both jobs are honorable and and just very gratifying. The work is extremely gratifying. And I think it's a shame uh, 
that uh, journalism does not employ as many people as it used to. You know, uh, I'm not sure that that's a permanent circumstance. It may be just temporary because we're in a transition now from print journalism to uh, digital journalism, mm -hmm. and we're still trying to sort out exactly what are the, the responsibilities of almost everybody who participates in the journalism form. Because if you make commentary on Facebook, mm -hmm. you in fact are, are, are becoming a journalist. You right. are you are doing journalism, and so. Uh, well, I was going to ask, what, what's it like for you to, to to be on Facebook and comment on Facebook and things like that? Like, I mean, is it on, on one level I have to think you, you love it because everybody's a journalist. On another level, I think you would kind of hate it because it's... Well, I don't like, hate it. But what I try to do is for my friends uh, who, who are participating in this form, I try to coach them about how they need to make sure that what they're posting is correctly attributed to the source. Who is saying this? And and oftentimes what people will do is they will post entire pieces under their name without saying that the, the piece is not their writing mm -hmm. but it's coming from somewhere else. All they need to do is put a tag either at the top or at the bottom. It's just little things like that that, that mm -hmm. are important because, we're as, as you know, we're in an era that is being described as the era of fake news. Mm -hmm. So everything needs to be labeled so that there's no, no, no uh, uh, doubt about where the mm -hmm. source is or who is saying this, whether it's commentary or straight yeah. news. That needs to be very clear. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I have issue with is I've never been a fan of satire. You know, uh, things like The Onion on Facebook drive me crazy. <laughs> because it takes me too long to realize that this is this is not real because it, it's so well done. <laughs> you know, I'm glad that it's well done, but I think that that somehow I don't think it's possible now to remove the label satire. It used right. to be right at the top. Sure. Yeah, so the, one of the things that my wife and I talk a lot about with Facebook is you know, everything's so polarized, and a lot of times people sort of will unfriend or unfollow the people who don't agree with their political views. And so there's this kind of question of, you know, in our relationship with social social media, you know, like to what extent do we should we try to uh, continue those dialogues, and to what extent is it just sort of, you know, not this is an internet forum and this is not really the venue for people changing their minds. So I, I don't know if you have, what do you think? So, do, I mean, do you argue with people endlessly on Facebook and try to... Not endlessly. No. No. Because you, 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 what happened, well, you, you, you can carry discussion to a point where it's very clear that the person that you're, you're talking to is not interested in dialogue but is more interested in getting their point across. Mm -hmm. Regardless. And that's all they're interested in. So... I mean, you can go a couple of rounds with that, and that's as far as it's going to go. So why continue? So uh, I think that really uh, is, is is the governing the way you govern uh, Facebook is you engage people, but don't uh, go, don't get mad at them when they don't mm -hmm. agree with you. Sure. Just let it go. That's their opinion. You yeah. have to let it go. Well, do you think that's an important civic duty? In this day and age, yes. to, to kind of I think I think in this day and age, we all are journalists. If you if you go on Facebook or any other social media forum, you become a journalist. So you have to uh, abide by certain journalism parameters. Otherwise, I think it's out of control, right? Mm -hmm. And you end up with a with a, with a situation where where fake news can can right. thrive, mm -hmm. you know, as it has now. I don't think that's a a permanent circumstance. I think that fake news will gradually fade away as people begin mm -hmm. to become more responsible in their responses to mm -hmm. what they see on Facebook. So, so maybe you can give all of us, all of us journalists, advice on being a journalist as an expert journalist yourself. Like, what are your your ground rules? What what do you, what are your standards when you're making an article? Attribution mm -hmm. is number one. You have to tell people who is speaking. 
you can't hide that in any way, and it's uh, it's really uh, counterproductive to to try to disguise who what voice is here. And uh, if you do that, I think you know it covers a multitude of sins. Uh, mm-hmm. Just attribute. You know, if you quote somebody, make it right. clear, close to that quote, who is saying those words. There, there I mean, there, there is a, such a thing as a, a canon of ethics among journalism, mm-hmm. and, and the keeper of that is uh, a group called Sigma Delta Chi, which mm-hmm. is a professional journalism society, and I actually have a key, which is, you know, sort of my, my uh, and a certificate somewhere, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. That says that you know I was inducted in, you know many years ago I think when I was a, a sophomore at Temple. Okay. So uh, and then you know there there are standards, mm-hmm. and but there've never been uh, any strong rules for, uh-huh. for what you can say because that's kind of not what journalism is. You, uh-huh. be, you need to be free. To be a journalist, you have to right. be free to be able to right. say what it is you want to say or whatever you want to report. Uh-huh. But you have to do it with a high degree of responsibility. This is why I don't think that amateurs or non-professionals, I should say, because I don't want to call them amateurs, but we are not, <laughs> non-professionals don't understand that there's a that 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 you need to take responsibility for what you post. Uh-huh. You know, if if if, if your mother is not going to be pleased by what you post. Uh, you may, may, maybe mm-hmm. better look at it again. I'm not saying you need to uh, to write things in a way that your mother's going to agree with. Right. You probably can't do that. But, you know, is she uh-huh. going to be shamed by what right. you write? That needs to be kind of a thing in the back of your head. Right. It's like, you know, is my conscience clear about what I'm putting right. here? You know, regardless of where you're, you're putting, you could be far right or far left. You know, but if your conscience is, cle- is clear about what you know, you're telling the truth, and you're not trying to be right. deceptive in your reporting or in your opinions, and you're not trying to sensationalize, right? Or exactly, sensationalize okay. is another one too. Yep. Always let your conscience be your guide. I think th- I think that we would we would go a long way towards yeah. preserving the, the, the unique and and positive aspects mm-hmm. of social media if we did that. Yeah. Um, were you ever in a situation where, where, as a journalist, you, you got some sort of a, a leak or a whistleblower that was talking to you, and now you're in, and now now it's uh, were you ever in a situation like that? And so because that because the the rules of the game kind of change, with that, yeah. that puts you in a, at a different sort of level of I don't want to say peril, but. Let me, let me just describe a situation that comes close to what you're talking about. Um, and I'm trying to zero in on the time period. It would have been in the mid-90s, probably early 90s, actually, when a group of black uh, construction contractors led a protest that caused major disruption to airline traffic around the country. And, and literally brought the powerful uh, New York, New Jersey Port Authority to its knees. Not well publicized because they, they didn't want this to get out as to what happened. But on one day, uh, they drove dump trucks parallel to one another in three lanes of traffic down the Van Wick Expressway that leads the only way to get into JFK Airport. Mm-hmm. What it did primarily was to delay uh, the airline pilots and uh, stewardesses from making their flights. Mm-hmm. So the, those flights were canceled. So that caused disruption to the next station, which sometimes was Chicago. And so and everything west got really fouled up that day. Their protest was over the fact that there was a $3 billion project, improvement project, going on at JFK Airport, JFK Airport, and black contractors could not get any of that work. Despite going through all of the normal processes. This is in the 80s? 90s. 90s, wow. 
they were locked out. They could they could not get a legitimate. They you know they were qualified, met all of the but nobody would have signed. They could get subcontracts, but they mm-hmm. could not get a main contract. That's you know that's where the money is. Right. And so they said you know we're tired. So with fair warning, they pulled off this protest, and the next day they got an agreement. Really? And yes. The next day. So how did you, so you learned about this? Well, I knew about past? this weeks in advance. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, I had a, you know, I went to the meetings. I, you know, they, they met in a diner in Queens. Uh-huh. And I couldn't even talk to my superiors about this. You know, at the paper, they had no idea that I was attending these meetings. And so did you report on it after it yes, happened? Yes, I wrote then? it after it happened, and I report, so this is what happened. After the contract was? Yeah, after, after the protest was successful. I wrote an op-ed uh, piece piece about what had happened and why it had happened and how it was successful. And my opinion was, and this is what, this is where I get to. Uh-huh. My opinion was that this was a technique that should be replicated in many places around the country, and again in the New York City area, if it were necessary. Right. And of course, you know that created a lot of letters. Say, like you have no idea what this did. I mean, yeah, I can imagine uh-huh. what, it, what it really. It was very disruptive to to the national commerce. I mean, think uh-huh. about it. You know, it's like the airlines lost money that day. Do you, but do you think with our news cycle now that there's a single journalist left in the country that would that would wait until to see if that negotiation? Yeah, there's a few. Rachel Maddow, I'm sure would. Yeah. You know, you just. Uh, you mean to, 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 to? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, there's it, hey, again, it's not. Wouldn't you be on Twitter now and so like, oh my gosh, there's three dump trucks no. going down? Uh, that might be reported out, but it would not be reported out what 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 the background of that was. Uh-huh. You know, they would not know. You know, I mean, subsequent to that story, they might mm-hmm. interview somebody. And say, well, why are you guys doing this? Sure, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you know, I, I I think what you're asking is, is there somebody who could hold on to secrecy for a couple of days until that story actually, yeah, a birthday came out? Yeah, I think there are. I, you know, I mean, we didn't lose our professional journalism. Just, you know, a lot of us retired. I mean, that's one of the reasons I retired, because I moved to Columbus in the early 2000s, 2001, actually, mm-hmm. uh, right after... 9-11, did 9-11 yeah. yeah, right after 9 well, in that same year, right? Yeah. And so uh, when I came here, uh, uh, the the, uh, the local paper, the, the Columbus Dispatch, uh, was downsizing. They weren't hiring anyway. Right. I don't know what degree which they were downsizing. They were probably downsizing by attrition, which most of the newspapers that did. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you were close to retirement, they, they may have given you a couple of dollars to exit early. You know, and so, uh, what was your question? So, well, the question, <laughs> the question I had is that, you know, I feel like nowadays, first of all, anything that happens, you know, you, the, just everybody knows about it instantly. Yeah. And so as soon as that, those, uh, was it concrete trucks or something? Yeah. We're going on the highway, people want to know why it is, uh, you know, why are they doing this, what's the issue? Yeah. Here's the bad guy. Well, again, well, it, people would have cell phones now. Cell recording. Phones, yeah. Recording. It's very different. You know, we're gonna have to break because I gotta go to the restaurant. Oh sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. How has how has the internet and social media changed traditional journalism? I think that's part of what you're asking, but I think you're also specifically asking about how how does it affect or impact civil rights yeah. reporting. Yeah, how has the relationship between journalism and civil rights issues changed? It's not just the internet. So, for example, you know, you you met with those guys before they as they were planning all this. Um, Did they ask you to stay quiet about it? Yes. Okay. How long? That was that was the agreement. I couldn't sit in on meetings without. Did you have a relationship with them before? Like, did you know John or something? I didn't know any of these guys before. No. No, I had a developer relationship. I mean, I've, I don't even remember how I was introduced to him. I was introduced to him by a friend, actually a guy who was uh, at the time he was uh, he was he was my wife's uh, uncle, right? So he he was he was he was not a, a prime child contractor himself. He was uh, he was just a worker, but he knew you know several of the guys who, who gave him work, 
you know, uh, and uh, uh, so he introduced me to this group and, uh, you know, told him, you know, I mean, that they knew, he knew that I was a, a, a writer at the time for, mm-hmm. for Newsweek. We're talking, not sure. Newsweek, we're talking about Newsday. I didn't make that clear. Uh, that this was Newsday, okay. which is a newspaper on Long Island. Right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what was in it for them to have you report, but then they didn't want you to, to have you in the room, but then they didn't want you to write up anything until well after it had happened? You know, thinking about it now, I'm not really sure that there was any uh, particular uh, mm-hmm. benefit to them other than, than uh, archiving or okay. keeping a, you know, a permanent record, mm-hmm. having somebody from the outside document mm-hmm. you know, what they were doing. Because mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the promise was that, for me, was that I would get to write about it afterwards. So, then, you know, so I would be, for them, a documentarian mm-hmm. of their activities. So... I think that's important yeah. for for them as well as for journalism and for me to yeah. be able to do that, you know, because that that was a very significant uh, protest that mm-hmm. really I don't think is is reported anywhere else. That that you know, people knew know that event happened, and there may have been one or two articles written about it afterwards. But the degree to which these men sat for weeks, I, I remember going to meetings for like six weeks mm-hmm. before they finally said, you know, we're gonna us off. So my, my m- was not to spill the beans ahead of time so that, you know, there would be an advance warning to, to, to uh, the Port Authority that this was going to happen. Because that would that would have caused yeah, that not would, to happen. Right. They, they would have stopped them. Right. They would have been, yeah, they would have been arrested um, as soon as they started. So have you seen evolution or change between the relationship between media and civil rights activists? Um, From then to now, during during uh, the civil rights movement, most of the good reporting was being done by uh, black African American uh, journals, and there was uh, a few. There was uh, the Baltimore. May have been called Baltimore African American, I think it was, mm-hmm. and then there was uh, the Carolina News, uh, which I uh, had been uh, part of as a, as a kid. I was a, I had their paper in my my newspaper sack. It was a weekly that was uh, published uh, by Ralph Austin in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, it was kind of like a one man operation, literally. I mean, he was. Mm-hmm. He was uh, the editor, he was the printer, he was the circulation manager, wow. and the advertising manager. And, uh, I, you know, uh, journal, journalism, newsprint journalism, for most of its history, is a massively work-intensive operation. You know, it, it, and it used to employ a lot of people, you know, and... Uh, you know, you had you, you had printers, you had compositors who were different than printers, and you had, you know, you had people, you had writers, you had editors, you had copy editors, you had, you know, headline writers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you had, you know, it, it was just a lot of people involved in, you know, photographers, uh, engravers, uh, you know, just a lot of skilled uh, things that's, that, you know, there were changes uh, when I when I went to Philadelphia, Philadelphia Bulletin in the early late seventies, late seventies. I worked at the Philadelphia Bulletin. Uh, there were changes there that were happening before our very eyes. I mean, I, I, this was a time when uh, uh, print journalism moved from typewriters to computers. Mm-hmm. You know, computers, desktop computers, and uh, and the. the newspaper industry were one of the first industries to to successfully merge their their task mm-hmm. you know with the entire newsroom suddenly typewriters were taken away and men actually quit their jobs retired early because they could not adjust to the idea that 
there is no paper here. This and 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 also stories could get lost between my desk and the editor's desk and disappear into cyberspace. We didn't have that that, that right. term didn't exist at that time, but it went somewhere, yeah. never to be found again. So it was that kind of fear almost every night as to whether your story was going to actually make it across. You know, you'd have to start all over again, which would have happened to me at least once or twice, you know. But as one of the ways that the industry tried to help accommodate this change for older workers, they actually put sound into the keyboard so that it sounded like a typewriter to help you know, psychologically deal with this this, this this change because, you know, their keyboards now are silent, but... Not in the night, not in the uh, mid '80s. You couldn't couldn't have a silent keyboard because these guys couldn't deal with it. So, so the, the question uh, I think is 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 how how does how does the news relate to the actual events now? So, with the, with the example of, of these these guys that that you know drove up uh, JFK to, to kind of stop traffic and and, and uh, delay all the planes and things like that, um, you know. The way that, that story went in the 1990s is probably different than it would go now. Yes. Right. It, it's different because, as we, we said earlier, it would have been, would have been instantly reported as, as it happened. And, and this, this is key, I think. The key is, this is what has changed. There is not now uh, any urgency left in reporting out the story because the reporting and the events happened simultaneously. It used to be mm-hmm. a time delay involved that you know that there sure. were that you know and so um, the, the the competitive nature of newspapering is not there anymore. You're not going to beat anybody with a story. Sure. In other words, so so I'm I'm as a journalist, I'm not in a particular rush to you know to report mm-hmm. this story out. So you know, not you're going to be more careful, but you're less prone to make mistakes. Because you have this time factor, you're you're not being rushed to to print, right? right? Because the story is being already reported. So so you're you're what you're doing is you're having opportunity to fill in with context, with uh, yeah. color, with you know. Yeah, well, the, the the thing with the that uh, the protest by the construction workers is is that I I have to imagine that if that had happened today, it's it wouldn't just be that you know that they did this and they delayed all the planes that that would be the leverage that they needed to to, to get those contracts opened up to them. Right. Uh, it would be it would be not only the disruption but it also be sort of the spin. You know what are they talking about on all the talk shows? Yeah. And it would turn into something where you know everybody everybody changes their Facebook. Uh, picture to support the construction work. Yeah, that's po- that's possible. Yeah, there would have been when more uh-huh. publicity to that cause. I think. Yeah, I think the long term effect might have been been greater than it was. Just my, my all, all they got from me was one uh, op ed piece uh, yeah. in in one newspaper of of, of six hundred thousand circulation in the New York mm-hmm. metropolitan area. So some people, you know, were aware and were affected by that. The impact of it. Was more on the people who were at the uh, who were in charge of the port authority, you know, knowing you know that, that this could possibly happen again yeah. if they did not respond. So the you know the pressures would have been different yeah. today, but right. n- the result would have been the same, I think. Yeah. Well, I was I was watching a, a TED talk by Malcolm Gladwell, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but but he was saying that the civil rights movement would have had a much harder time. Like historically, if somehow we had some weird universe in which the civil rights movement existed uh, with social media and all of those in the media that we now have, um, they would have had a hard time selling their story to the American public if everybody with a cell phone could, could give their own little their spin on the story. Malcolm Gladwell was saying that that the way that a lot of the protests worked out, they they handpicked the journalists from sort of the major magazines, and so. That the, the way that a lot of this works is that there'd be some protests, there'd be people arrested and, and injured and things like that, and then it would get, be all over the magazines in in uh, the northern part of the country, and then that's kind of how civil the the groundwork for civil rights legislation and the Civil Rights Act 
would get laid. Yeah. Um, but we don't have that now. Everybody just we don't have that those big major sources of news. We have lots of little sources of news, which maybe which maybe is making it much harder to achieve. I, I, I'm not sure I could agree with his conclusions. I mean, I understand his premise, you know, but uh, uh, I I still think that that. Uh, Getting stories out, whether they come from accomplished or, or professional journalists, or whether they come from individuals who are using their cell phones, you know, reporting is reporting, and and if, uh, this is this is where it becomes more incumbent on one, the person who is reporting the news and posting it on social media, they have a responsibility for accuracy and context, mm -hmm. you know, because it is incumbent on them. And then the consumer mm -hmm. has to be, you know, what, what the real problem in America today for me is that there is uh, an appreciation and premium given to lack of, of uh, knowledge, mm -hmm. to to remaining ignorant, you know, uh, into, what is called intellectual uh, anti-intellectualism. Anti -intellectualism. You know, this, that's the that's the, that's the real danger to both journalism sure. and democracy. Is that people people just not investigate, not really try to find out what truth is, mm -hmm. or you know who, who's the Affordable Care Act is being spun right now is they're giving us something that the CBA the Congressional Budget Office says will 24 million people will lose their insurance and that's being spun by the uh, Health and Human Service. Secretary, right. it's not being a big deal that it's better somehow. Yeah, yeah. You say so they can take you know it's so, but that would would have happened whether or not there was social media or not. They, they will s still spin so? it. Yeah, they would. I you think you think we wouldn't have the hyperpartisan politics that we have now without social media? I think we would have it regardless of social media. I think that there's, I don't really see how social media has has created more partisanism or how it could have created more partisanism. Uh, well, there's this the, idea of the echo chamber that in social media, you know, you you express your views to all your friends, your friends are like, yeah, totally agree with you, but, but then none of your friends have this opposing viewpoint. Okay. So just these two communities just don't this talk by, to each by, other. By, by pointing out the fact that in the early 1900s, New York City had 38 newspapers. Daily newspapers. That's a lot. Yeah. You think there weren't silos created there? Yeah. People not going outside in the neighborhoods, just taking newspapers that's right sure. there in, in their neighborhoods. So I thought you might say that, actually. I thought you might say that, you know, <laughs> Go, going to find news that supports your viewpoint is not a uniquely new did, phenomenon. Did, did not happen just in the last decade. Sure, that's fair. So I mean, it's, so it's it's more. It's like everything's this different, but it's also everything's the same. Right. It's just different. <laughs> the human condition. Yeah, and, yeah. and and it's true for journalism. You know, it's just. We have a, we've had uh, a rough transition, you know, because we, we're all trying to understand this. You know, there, there were people who were losing their jobs, and everybody's like scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, mm -hmm. how to one save yourself, you know, right. how you're going to survive through this, you know, and uh, and then you know, consumers are trying to figure out, just like always before, they're trying to figure out who can we trust. And then that will happen, you know. I mean, I think you know the major, long-term, well-respected journals are still long-term and still respected. The Times is still there. Wall right. Street Journal, for whatever you think about it, is still there. Yeah. It's still respected, you know. As, as you know, they mostly tell the truth. Uh, you know, I think uh, there was some. Uh, uh, the last presidential campaign exposed. Uh, journalism's shortcomings where how I believe a lot of, of the uh, professional journalism's journalists were taken in by the events by, by Donald Trump they mm -hmm. were just you know and they didn't really uh, take him seriously mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, they, they considered him for the majority of the campaign until it was too late, until everybody else in the primaries right. had dropped out. He wasn't really considered at all as a, as a possible winner. He was not taken seriously. If someone went, took that seriously, they, that Donald Trump could win. So they didn't do a good job, in my mind. And I think they recognize that. I think you, if you mm -hmm. talk to them now and you listen to them yeah. talk about how well they performed during that mm -hmm. last campaign, they will tell you they did a terrible job as a group. Mm -hmm. They will admit to that. They felt they 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 uh, did not fulfill uh, their their calling. They did not. Yeah. And so they're, they're trying to make up for it now. And I think they're doing it in a responsible way. Wow. You know, they're not like overreacting. For example, saying like you know we need to fill in. You know, we need to save our reputation. I think that they know that yeah. if they do this job right, just do it like you're supposed uh -huh. to, that that will save their reputations. See, I, I blame more, um, like, the way that Facebook did not flag uh, questionable news stories. I think that has much to do with with uh, with the outcome. Yeah, you know, and, um, and, but the, the, and they but want to change that now. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say to their credit, I, I think the problem was that they, they didn't really understand the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that, you know, we, we could point a lot of fingers, but if you, you, you did drill down deep, nobody, at least I don't believe that Facebook had a sinister motive. You know, they were trying to figure this out too as well. Well, I think they were scared though, because if they all of a sudden, I think what happened is that they were scared that if all of a sudden they institute a policy of, of saying, of flagging things as disputed, which I think is what they're planning to do. If all of a sudden they came up with that policy six months before the November election, then Donald Trump would never have let them near the end of it. And it would just, you know, it just been, it would just have been a circus of criticism towards Facebook. And, you know, Donald Trump would have tried to get everybody to leave Facebook and things like that. So they just kind of looked at their bottom line and said, you know what, let's let the election be. The election looks like Hillary's going to win. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think that's I think that's part of what happened because I mean it's just the the uh, that's my interpretation of events. Uh, yeah, I I just simply I don't, I don't I believe. Here's here's my bottom line. I always look at people's motivations, right? Mm -hmm. So so I can see Zuckerberg wanting to protect the corporation, I mean, like, right. like, keep the baby, you know. So I'm certainly you know that that was you know how it, what is going to be the the fallout if we. If we push back on this, right. uh, these, these questionable stories, you know, and, and but I think the truth is that they didn't really know how to handle that. They hadn't really worked it out. And and again, we're talking about a short time period here. We're talking about a matter of months, right. and things are kind of happening rather rather quickly. So I think it was a little bit too yeah. much to expect that they would have done anything differently right. than what they did. Well, I think they, there was a, somebody exposed that they were curating a little bit and trying to trying to put slightly more left-leaning stuff on the news feeds. Yeah. And so when that story broke, they knew that they just couldn't touch it anymore. Okay. Until after the elections. And I think that's part of how... And so all these Breitbart things got higher up on the news feed and Pizzagate and all this stuff. Do you hear about Pizzagate, Michelle? Do you have any idea what I'm talking no, about Pizzagate? You don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> all right. Moving on. <laughs> um, did, you, did you have a... Well, so, so you're a retired journalist. Yeah, I'd like to say semi-retired. Semi-retired. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, so I think journalists and writers don't really retire ever. You know, it's just because you, whether you you have a publisher or not, I mean, there's always Facebook. I mean, I think, I mean, if anybody who follows my my feeds or my comments on Facebook, you know, I, I don't participate in every conversation, but... Those that I do, I will continue the conversation. I will, I will take a point of view and I will defend it and do the best I can, you know, to to uh, to be a journalist in that environment. Because that, to me, I mean, th that to me, uh, is is a role for somebody in my my position as a former journalist, a former uh, daily active journalist. Are you involved in some other projects that you're working on besides writing yeah. on Facebook? That, that are not on Facebook. <laughs> um, projects. Give us a plug for your Sunny Patch Media. Oh. You, you've earned it. <laughs> uh, 
I wasn't quite at retirement age when when I came to Columbus, so I, you know, uh, for a period there, I actually drove a taxi, which is not unusual for for journalists and actors to you know to to drive a taxi or uh, work in a restaurant as a waiter or dishwasher. So um, uh, I grew up in an era when when work was work, and uh, you didn't really discriminate against uh, you didn't differentiate between the status of a, a street sweeper or a janitor and a teacher. They were different. They had different roles, but each role was respected. So I took a job for five years as a cab, cab driver. But then I, uh, my fiance, say, and I, who's not my wife, we had a child, and I recognized that uh, I could not uh, support a family uh, well on a cab driver's earnings. Mm -hmm. So uh, I looked for ways to uh, to enter a new profession, and I had had some previous experience in television. In the mid-'80s, when I was in Philadelphia, I was a, uh, a producer of a show called uh, Visions, and I produced uh, 13 uh, mini-documentary uh, uh, programs, 30-minute programs for that show. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, I thought that I would take a, a, a stab at going back into television or uh, video media and uh, took uh, training at uh, Columbus State and acquired equipment and uh, formed a company called Sunny Patch Media. And uh, we, we, have, we had a few projects of which we got paid and uh, I still have my cameras and I can still uh, uh, throw down as they say. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I'm on the board of uh, the a group called SEDCO, which is uh, a uh, economic development uh, corporation in central Ohio, right here in Columbus, and uh, uh, our, our project is has been for the last several years called the Food District Project, and it has had some challenges, but uh, we're now moving that forward, and so uh, as we do that, I've been actually asked to to look at the possibility of producing a video for for SEDCO on the the new uh, uh, food processing, uh, high high pressure food processing uh, equipment that we're about to acquire, you know, for uh, for that project. So uh, that's one project that I'm working on. Uh, I have uh, a novel that I have done all of the outline for, and I just simply need time to write it. Uh, I need space to write it, meaning when I say space, I mean physical space but mental space, mental space mm -hmm. you know to write it it is about uh, it is about Islam in America huh. and ISIS and all of that kind of stuff but it's centered in the Moorish uh, invasion of southern Spain that began in the ninth century not it lasted for 800 years. Beg your pardon? Not what I w would have guessed. Yeah, and it lasted uh, for 800 years. Wow. And brought uh, Europe out of the Dark Ages. Hmm. So, you know, the idea is that Islam is not, uh, not something we should be afraid of. Yeah. You know, right. It's like it's not going right. to, you know, all your children are not going to change into something weird if, they, if, if your neighbor next door. Right. Is a muddle. Um, <laughs> so that's the that's the purpose and the idea behind it. Yeah. I, I want to ask you one question. And we could just sort of rewind back to the to the Facebook conversation. Um, something I never told you was, um, uh, so you you friended my mom at one point on Facebook. Okay. And I never told you that my m Michelle. Did I ever tell you this story? Go ahead. Uh, I, I never told you that my mom, so she calls me up and she's like, who's, who's Martin? Like, why, who's this Martin Weston? Why, why did he, why did he friend me? And so it, and it was funny because what she did is she, she looked on your Facebook profile and she, she saw, I mean, you often post about President Obama and his daughters and things as many people do on Facebook. And so my, that's not my mother's favorite president. <laughs> and uh, and so she looked at your Facebook feed, and she was like, "Well, why why would he 
friend me uh, who does not she does not tend to post things about President Obama on her Facebook so could you tell my mother why why you friended her on Facebook because she was your mother and I met her at my house I think did she come to my house where did I meet your mother I met your mother I think I met your mother at my house and I'm trying to think how would that circumstance occurred it's possible but yeah. I did meet your mother and that's why I friended her because I had met her and she's your mother <laughs> okay <laughs> that, that was that was my only uh, reason for doing it and uh, I just thought it would be interesting to be uh, Facebook friends with my friend's mother all right. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, sitting down for an interview with us. Well, Martin. thank you so so much for inviting me, and uh, I had a good time. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I'm glad we could turn the tables on you and put the microphone in, in front of you instead of okay. somebody else. So. Enjoy <laughs> your birthday cake. Thank you. All right. <laughs>